1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
2: Hello, everybody. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange the day after. Investors still kind of processing Thursday's massive rally. And now, what comes next? Plus, bigger than Enron, the latest on the FTX bankruptcy and some of the huge new numbers being revealed. How did some of the world's most sophisticated investors miss everything? And the China conundrum, they seem to be relaxing some of their strictest COVID policies, but... With an authoritarian in charge, maybe forever, is it safe to invest there? All this ahead, but let us start with the markets and your money. Bob Pisani will call this the day after. I don't remember that show from the 80s, but this is a much better version of that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and it's a great day. Actually, narrow range, uh, Brian, 2 to 1, advancing to declining stocks. Still on the upside, we've been trying to push towards 4,000 on the S&P, and Boy, we just fell back a little bit, but we were heading that direction. Uh, We're up, uh, what, 5% for the week on the S&P 500. It's two-month highs right now. The Dow is actually lagging all the other major indices, up about 3%. The the reason is Disney was a real drag on the Dow this week, and some of the more defensive stocks uh, like Merck, for example, uh, Johnson & Johnson are down this week as growth is back. NASDAQ started weak today uh, on uh, word of that FTX bankruptcy that dents the uh, risk on Appetite, but we rallied very quickly back up, and that's the big winner. The NASDAQ's up about 7% this week. Take a look at the sectors, and again, you look on risk on, risk off, what's the appetite? Very simple way to look at this. Uh, ARC down at the open and rallied very quickly up. That's the big winner on the day and on the week here. Uh, they're up about 12% for the week. Uh, semiconductors also up about oh 13, 14%. So you see the risk on really back materials, which is a sort of proxies for global growth outside of technology, having a good week. That's up about 8%. Uh, energy's lagging a little bit, but healthcare and consumer staples, the de- defensive sectors, are the ones that are really lagging. And you just see the risk appetite coming back here. Uh, why is this happening? Remember what's happened in the last 24 hours. We've seen some progress on the three big macro issues that have been moving the market. First, on the Fed and inflation with the CPI, then, COVID lockdowns easing a bit in China, not going away, but clearly easing. And then, of course, Progress uh, in Russia, uh, in the Ukraine, rather, where the Russians are retreating from this strategically important city of Kherson. There's talks about negotiations. All right, it's preliminary, but at least the news is going in the right direction for those watching the markets. Uh, take a look at what we've been seeing here in terms of the leadership, and you can see that in the S&P, how the news is affecting the the markets here. So there's wind. Las Vegas sands up on the China story. Freeport's been rallying uh, on the China story as well. Uh, AMD and so the risk on uh, semiconductors are having a great week. NVIDIA's up here. And even home building stocks are rallying. Anything related to the home, Mohawk and Lenar have all had uh, very good weeks in the last 24 hours. What's not doing so well today? Well, again, you can see the news impacting the stock market. It's defensive stocks that are down today on this this news of what's going on uh, in Ukraine. So these stocks have had great runs in the last few weeks, but they're the ones that are moving down today. Brian, back
2: to you. All right, Bob. Thank you. And have a great weekend, Bob. Appreciate it. All right, so let's stay on the markets and your money on this Friday. So exactly what was yesterday? Just some kind of knee-jerk reaction to a slightly better CPI print and hopes for a Fed shift, or a real turn in sentiment to the upside? Let's bring in Julian Salisbury, is global head of Goldman Sachs Asset Management, which has over two trillion in assets. I'm sure your phone was, as the kids say, blowing up, Julian. With what was it? What was yesterday? Just a one-off, one-hit wonder? The the market version of Dexies Midnight Runners?
3: <laughs> I, I I look, I think it was um We've seen over the last uh, few months really that um, people have just been waiting for a light at the end of the tunnel, and every time there's a, a sense that we may be seeing some moderation in inflation, we see these these risk-on moves. And you know, it was a particularly extreme version of that yesterday, uh, given the you know the data print, you know, combined with a couple of the other factors you talked about in, in China and Ukraine. I think it's hard to see this being a long-term sustained rally, and though until we start to see, um, you know, we we start approaching. Uh, you know, until we really start seeing a light at the end of the tunnel on rates and inflation. And then I also think as people start getting more confidence around that, you know, attention is going to then start turning to the earnings outlook. And what we're certainly hearing from our portfolio companies um, is that whilst they are uh, expecting and sensing some uh, moderation in earnings and pressure on earnings, that that's still yet to feed through. So you may see a scenario where, whilst people get more confident about the rate outlook, that uh, we still have the worst to come in, t- in terms of some of the earnings uh, information that's going to come through. So I think until that's started to play through, it's it's hard to see a sustained rally here.
2: OK, let's talk about individual groups, because the macro market, we can kind of flip a coin and probably be almost just as right at this point. Uh, I want to talk about renewables, Julian. I I do a lot of work on on energy, as we know. I mostly talk about the dinosaur juice, obviously fossil Mm -hmm. fuels. But renewables are going to be a big part of the coverage going forward as well. And here's the thing. we got the world in Egypt right now talking about climate change, the Inflation Reduction Act, $300 billion being thrown in tax credits at a lot of these renewable strategies. I hate to use the term no-brainer when it comes to renewable investments, because that might make me sound like an FTX investor perhaps at this point. But it seems like there's a lot of tailwinds.
3: There are huge tailwinds. This is one of the biggest secular themes to invest around over the next ten, twenty years. Absolutely, uh, you know. Word of caution: it was also a huge theme, you know, back in the kind of two thousand seven, eight, nine period. Uh, you had a lot of money made by some of the early investors in, in renewable energy then, and then people started backing a bunch of crazy science experiments that went wrong. Um, It then went through a period of consolidation. uh, And and now you're seeing real um, investable uh, economic projects emerging. And I think this is a huge secular trend to get behind. But again, given how apparently obvious it seems, you know, you're going to have to pay very close attention towards risk return that's available. You know, one of the real interesting things here is whilst some time ago you started getting um, more economic opportunities around utility scale development, uh, what was still lacking in terms of driving overall infrastructure rollout was um, some of the technology around batteries in order to manage the, the, you know, the grid and the, and the congestion that was taking place. Um, and, that's, and that's something that's also starting to reach a tipping point in terms of uh, commercialization.
2: Any other sectors that you like from a longer term strategy at GSAM?
3: Look, I, I, w- within infra, um, I would say this um, sustainable or renewable energy theme is clear. I also think just the general digitization theme uh, is clear. I think from a growth perspective, right now, like, Um, it feels a little bit like the baby's been thrown out uh, with the bathwater. Nobody wants to touch growth. We've seen huge value destruction uh, and more probably still to come in private markets where some of the consolidation around pricing and valuations has yet to feed through. Um, uh, But I think we're going to set set for a period of consolidation here um, over the next six, 12 months, where what emerges is still uh, an amazing number of tremendous growth companies, growth opportunities that can be backed. It's just the valuations got completely out of whack last year. Yeah. So that, that but the underlying trend and theme is, is, is still there.
2: All right. Good stuff there. Longer macro, some ideas and a lot of tailwinds behind the renewable space. Julian Salisbury, appreciate you joining us. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you. All right. On deck, a huge takeout on the FTX collapse. Could it end up being bigger than Enron? It might be, and we'll explain why. Plus, how could so many so-called sophisticated investors miss all of what we are learning right now? William Cohen is here to kind of break that down. And then, is China really loosening up its COVID policy? We'll get a live report from the ground. The exchange rolls on on a Friday right after this. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Sam Bankman-Fried now out at FTX, the company filing for bankruptcy. Many questions remain, but one thing is clear. This is just the latest and the biggest in a series of spectacular blow-ups in the crypto world this year. Remember this summer, crypto hedge fund Three Arrows Capital, also the smartest guys in the room, blew up because of, you guessed it, risky, highly levered bets. That brought down some other companies, some of which, by the way, ended up getting bought by FTX, a move that Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong said yesterday in Power Lunch raised some red flags for him. Well, now here we are again. The world's second-largest exchange bankrupt. BlockFi pausing customer withdrawals. Also, maybe gone. Alameda Research, FTX's hedge fund, gone. Voyager Digital, who knows? Celsius over, and currency Terra Luna wiping out investors earlier this year. How did all this happen? We got all the angles covered today. Kate Rooney with the very latest details. On FTX, Katsodia, bank CEO and blockchain expert Caitlin Long on the fallout for Crypto World and Bill Cohan, Puck founder, CBC contributor and chronicler of Wall Street misdeeds on how this compares to other blowups. Let's begin, though, with the facts. What we know right now, Kate Rooney on a story that every hour seems to have some big, weird and kind of sometimes creepy new development.
5: Yeah, it's changing quickly, Brian. And FTX, if you think back to Monday, it was technically A $32 billion company, it fell into bankruptcy in the matter of about four days. CEO uh, Sam Bankman-Fried now stepping down. The 30-year-old will stay on through this Chapter 11 transition. He tweeted this morning. We finally heard from him. He said, I'm really sorry again that we ended up here. He says he was shocked to see things unravel the way they did earlier this week. This filing includes Bankman-Fried's quant trading firm, Alameda Research, as well as 134 affiliated companies all over the world. Places like Nigeria, Uganda, South Africa, you've got Europe, Hong Kong, and Switzerland as well. The estimated liabilities at this point stand at between $10 billion and $50 billion. That number, I'm told, could also change. There are more than 100,000 creditors also listed in this paperwork. Sam Banquet-Fried had been bailing out others in the industry this year. Like you mentioned, Brian, one of those companies, BlockFi, pausing withdrawals, Overnight, and two sources now tell me the Department of Justice is looking into FTX and Sam Bankman Freed. All of this has been hitting crypto prices and sentiment. FundStrat just out with a note to clients saying it's appropriate to wait for lower lows in terms of prices. They say there will be other casualties, which could lead to more forced selling or at least headline risk. And if we learned anything from the other credit crises this year, it's that sometimes it takes a little while to find out where the bodies are buried as they put it brian back to you
2: and there's going to be a lot of corporate bodies that are here at least to your point 134 and and maybe rising kate um do we know where sam bankman freed is right now or or his or his hedge fund ceo caroline ellison who was reported also to be his girlfriend
5: sort I of spoke, i spoke to a source who is close with Sam Bankman fried And the way they put it is that he is ghosting some of his closest investors and confidants. So they don't know where he is at this point. He is technically based in Nassau, Bahamas. We don't know if he's there right now. No word from him. And radio silence is really what I've been hearing from people who are close with him. We don't know. But he did have a small, tight-knit group that was based in Nassau, a very young group of employees. And that was seen as a good thing. When we interviewed him back in August, he cited that as a reason for being lean, being more profitable and pointed to bigger, what he called more bloated yeah. companies like Coinbase. But in hindsight, people now say, well, he didn't have the manpower to be doing what he said he was doing and managing billions of dollars.
2: Okay, Kay Rooney, thank you very much. Now let's turn to the potential contagion risk in the industry. Caitlin Long, Wall Street and Bitcoin veteran of Custodia Bank joining us now. and obviously, this is a, this is there's been a number of failures this year, Caitlin. This is the biggest and obviously the highest profile. I don't think it's overstatement TV hyperbole to say this is a critical time for the entire industry. Is it not?
6: Well, sure, it is, but for the grizzled veterans who've been around quite a bit longer than any of these new company newer companies that have failed, in the uh, laundry list that you provided, most of those companies were only a couple of years old, including FTX. Uh, the grizzled veterans have seen this before, and uh, we're all saying, good riddance. Uh, there was way too much leverage applied to this industry to an asset that absolutely cannot be leveraged safely ever, Bitcoin. And, uh, and, and uh, you, you saw actually a lot of the Wall Street Mercenaries come in, a lot of people from quant trading, a lot of hedge fund traders who wanted to apply their, their, their tools, their games, uh, to an unregulated asset class. I thought it was interesting that one of the more prominent ones admitted that he didn't even know what a blockchain was when he started trading crypto. That speaks volumes as to why And the yet blow-ups Caitlin,
2: occurred. And yet, people gave these firms billions. Yes, it's like, indeed. I don't know what a horse is, but I'm going to bet on the Kentucky Derby and yep. I'm going to bet a billion dollars. And by the way, you have beautiful horses behind you.
6: Oh, thank you. Yeah. A, a lot. Seriously, a lot of reputations uh, of, of previously respected venture capitalists and investors have been permanently impaired here. And they weren't listening to those of us who warned that these business models were inherently risky. And in the absence of regulation and regulatory clarity in the U.S., what ended up happening is that a lot of scammers and outright criminals filled the void. And and I'll give you an example. Uh, The the offshore derivatives platforms were offering 125 to one leverage at one time, the onshore regulated derivatives platforms were not offering more than two and a half times leverage. Okay, so at 125 to one leverage, which is one of the products that FTX offered, that would have, the, the house odds on something like that would have made the 1950s Vegas mobsters blush because they were 99% probability that the house won. But in a, in a upward trending bull market, uh, they were able to wrap in. I, I saw from from your Kate the report with Kate, a hundred thousand creditors. Yes, a that lot we know of people of, that
2: we know uh, of. <laughs> right, one hundred and thirty-four right. subsidiaries that we know of. In I looked at the list. They're in. They're all over the world. Some of them bizarre names. Who the hell are they? We don't know. Right. I want you to repeat what you said just a moment ago, for our audience, for the people in the back. A hundred and twenty five to one leverage
6: yes, yes, and th- by the way, there are still other offshore exchanges that offer that, and That's again, not- those are ninety nine percent house odds contracts, right. They wouldn't be offered onshore in the United States. They, they would not be allowed to be offered onshore. And yet these things were happening. And 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 one of the challenges with that is that there hasn't been onshore regulatory clarity. The good guys, so to speak, uh, uh, we've been blocked from getting bank charters, getting broker-dealer licenses because of the lack of clarity in the U.S. So it, it's a mishmash of a lot of things that yeah. happened here. But there's one fundamental takeaway, which is that Bitcoin itself should never be leveraged. It cannot be leveraged safely. And anyone who thinks that they can lever it safely is going to learn a very hard lesson that that illiquidity is the same thing as insolvency. There is no such thing as, oh, I'm just suffering a temporary liquidity problem. And here's why. No one is ever going to make more than 21 million Bitcoins. And so the moment that there are more claims to Bitcoin, there are only 19.2 million that have been mined and outstanding to date, there are clearly a lot more than 19.2 million claims to Bitcoin out there and all these insolvent intermediaries that are going bust. And they're all claiming, oh, I I just have a temporary liquidity problem. No, they don't. They're fundamentally insolvent. And they went insolvent the moment they started offering more than the 19.2 million claims to Bitcoin. That means because there's no lender of last resort, there is no clearinghouse to bail them out when they get into these liquidity crunches. That means that the insolvency that they had all along is being revealed and good riddance to it all, because this leverage is not it doesn't have anything to do with Bitcoin. These market structure, Wall Street mercenaries that came in and started leveraging it up like crazy in the last few years deserve to be flushed. I don't wish ill on anyone. But for those of us who really do care about the technology and the, the, the signal other than the noise. The noise is the, is the wreck, the, the rubbernecking yeah. that we're all doing on the, on the wreck. Here's the signal. Elon Musk yesterday announced that Twitter is going to be offering peer-to-peer payments on the Twitter platform. That is already integrated with Bitcoin's lightning network. He could turn that on immediately today. That yeah. is using the real technology. That is the no- the signal through the noise. I know the rubbernecking and the drama is more interesting. But those of us who are really building this technology, we're as, a, as positive as ever. And frankly, grateful that the grifters are yeah. being flushed out.
2: Well, we'll see what happens. Kayla Long, great take. Thank you very much. All right, so just how big might the FTX disaster end up being? Let's put what we know into perspective. Now, I want you to listen to this. Listen closely. The bankruptcy documents, seen by CNBC says that FTX's liabilities are, quote, in the range of $10 to $50 billion. First off, a range of $40 billion is simply insane. It's one of the biggest that we have ever seen. And do you remember the spectacular implosion of Enron, the oil and gas trading firm that turned out to be largely a near-complete fraud, Well their bankruptcy liabilities were about 23 billion and even adjusted for inflation in 2001 dollars. FTX may end up owing more or even twice as much as Enron. I want to bring in Bill Cohen. He's a founding partner at Puck. He's a CBC contributor. He's author of the new book Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American icon, which sort of seems b- bizarrely apt and, and timely at this point in a different way. You've also written extensively about Enron. A lot of pundits, myself included, have said, oh, it's a Lehman moment. I thought about it. I'm like, no, it's not a Lehman moment. That was kind of a, a slower burn at first. This feels a lot more like Enron.
7: Well, Brian, I think the shock of how quickly this occurred uh, feels like Enron. Uh there's a difference, though, uh, and of course, you know, the liabilities could be in excess of Enron, as you pointed out, uh, and almost on a par with the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. Uh, in some ways, though, it reminds me of the Bear Stearns bankruptcy and how quickly that disappeared in about a week. This was about the same time frame. The difference that I would note with regard to Lehman, with Bear, and even Enron is, you know, those were real companies, okay? Uh, those were, uh, you know, US domestically based companies uh, with uh, reputations that, in some cases, with Lehman Brothers, went back 150 years. Uh, uh, Bear Stearns had been around for 85 yeah. years. Thousands of
2: employees. That.
7: Thousands of employees. SEC filings, Brian. I mean, FTX. What's had that? None what's of that. an SEC filing, Bill? Right, exactly. Among friends, what's an SEC filing? You know, I think the Wall Street Journal made a very good point uh, in its editorial this morning about the Fed's responsibility of this. You know, if the Fed had not had 13 years of zero interest rate policies, people wouldn't be looking around the world for, you know, easy, get rich, quick schemes. And I think that's what Bitcoin has become, unfortunately. It's a very interesting idea and a very interesting technology, but really it was based on a greater fool theory. And I think all of crypto has been based on, on that. And well, I don't think that's I think that's probably maybe something that's going to save this from being too contagious, because really, I mean, what does what did crypto do? What does it? Uh, you know, you can't really nothing. use It took money from it took money things, from, right? took money from
2: to, smart people and gave it to other people that somebody had exactly. apparently had said was smart because, you know, they went to MIT. So how could they not be smart? And, and I guess it feels maybe Theranosian, is that a term, Elizabeth Holmes? Like, and we don't want to presume any liability or guilt here, but we do know there's a bankruptcy filing and everything. But I think what, if you look into he Theranos, what Holmes was very Yeah, Theranosian. Yeah. I've coined that. You can hashtag it. Yeah. Was that she was very good at putting really respected people on her board, right? That, that if you sort of you know questioned certain things about the business, there was, there was cover there. I think we're finding out that Bankman-Fried, whatever ends up happening, the FTX board had a a former CFTC commissioner on it. He was a huge political donor. There were a lot of connections. You met Sam Bankman-Fried. You did a documentary on him. In your mind, Bill, is he some genius who just screwed up? Or is there something maybe more nefarious or socio something about it?
7: Well, of course, that's the sixty-four billion, potentially sixty-four billion-dollar question right now. I mean, he had—he's young, right, Brian? He's you know just turned thirty. He was supposedly the wealthiest person under thirty uh, last year, last December when I uh, interviewed him. He was twenty-nine. He sort of has this naivete about him, uh, but also, uh, uh, you know, MIT graduate, as you pointed out. Both his parents are Stanford law professors. Uh, clearly, you know, was a Jane Street capital trader. Obviously, "quote unquote" brilliant, right? Uh, did he do this knowingly? I mean, that's something that the Justice Department is going to have to get to the bottom of. Uh, he was incredibly uh, charming in his way, uh, both with the media, uh, with lobbyists in Washington. Uh, you know, you're showing the Fortune cover story, which was just from last September literally on the cover of fortune and you know ask is he the next warren buffett i think we know the answer to that now uh he uh charmed a lot of people and you know the largest donor to uh one of the largest donors to president biden in the 2020 cycle a big donor to democratic causes philanthropic uh, effective altruism he was a very charming engaging entrancing guy especially when he's the uh young uh, the wealthiest person under 30. So a lot of people were, I don't want to use the word conned, but that's sort of what it feels like. We'll have to see whether this was fraudulent or not, Brian.
2: Yeah, we don't know. And the courts will decide this. Potentially a jury will decide this. The Department of Justice will decide this again. But, you know, from a from a macro perspective, Bill, and you know, I'm not going to ask how old you are because you're a handsome man, you know, but but I'm up there in age. I got a five handle. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I've been doing this a while. I got a six handle, my friend. No, well, you don't look it. But, but listen, here, here's why I bring this up, is that I'm not going to say I saw FTX coming. No, I did not. Not at all. But I've been critical of crypto. In May, I did a little piece on the Terra Luna and watch for the fallout and all this stuff. And, you know, and what happens is when you're of a certain age, you get people that come out and they're like, yo, you're just old. You don't get it, bro. Like old man yells at clouds. It's not just FTX, right? This entire sort of crypto industry is like, if you just question it a little bit, you, ju- you're, you just don't get it. You're too old, bro, right? It's It provided the industry a lot of cover for what has been a crap storm, for lack of a better term, the last year. You know what I mean, right? You can't even criticize it. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. You, you can be,
7: quote-unquote, canceled as an older adult for lack of a better term for questioning nfts the blockchain cryptocurrencies you just don't get it i mean not unlike what happened you know in, if i may date myself in in 99 98 99 and 2000 leading up to the uh you know internet 1.0 crash hey man you just don't get it this is a new world order but you know the truth is when you get to be my age and you started on wall street in 1987 September of 1987, a month before the largest percentage crash of the stock market in history, 22.6 yeah. percent in one day. You know, you get, uh, you know, wise very quickly to these kinds of behaviors, and I, I've seen this pattern. I've, se- I've written about this pattern and this inevitability that was coming. Obviously, we didn't see it at FTX. Who could have? Just like, you know, you couldn't see it at Bear Stearns, but. The the risks that were being taken, the way the Fed was making money so easy to be available to so many people and they were just going for it. And all of these promises of yep. you know revolutionary change, you know, it's from maybe I'm too cynical. Me- but no, I just, remember,
2: I was just starting out my career in ninety nine. And remember when analysts started using the term revenue per eyeball? Like oh. I haven't seen that in Graham and Dodd where, did, you know, but they were using it. In investment banking, then 2008, I did my 2007 special subprime shockwaves. I think you might have been on it, warning about these derivatives. Everybody's like, oh, you just don't get it. We're just back there again, where if it's a bunch of young people with Ivy League pedigrees and you dare to question some new technology, you just don't get it. And by the way, in 15 years, there's probably going to be something else, right? It's going to be some new thing that we just don't get. And you and I will sit there in Del Boca Vista or wherever we are, (laughs) Bill, look forward to your writing about it and Puck, by the way.
7: Thank you, Brian. Well, I think, you know, you're absolutely right. This will be very healthy for everybody, though. So, you know, hang on to your hats. I think this is the good news is this is not like Lehman. This is not like bear. This is not a meltdown to the core of the financial system. This is sort of on the periphery. The people who invested that one point eight billion dollars in FTX over the last few years, they'll get hurt, but they probably deserve it.
2: By the way, all, you know, probably uh, NYU, Columbia Business School grads who somehow missed all of it. It's just insane. Bill Cohen, we'll get you back on again soon. Thank you. Check out his new book, Power Failure. All right, on deck. The tech rally rolls on despite FTX, at least for now. We're going to try to figure out what is next. We're
4: back in two minutes. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
2: Very few days are yesterday, but the markets are mostly in the green right now. The Dow is slightly down. S&P's up eight-tenths. NASDAQ, nice little tech rally, continues up 1.8%. So we're closing out a really big week. The NASDAQ is going to be up, I think, what, 7% on the week. That is a big week. All right, now let's go to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update.
8: Brian, thank you very much. And here is the update at this hour. Rayan Wilson, known for his role on The Office, has changed his name to protest climate change. The actor announced he'll now go by rainfall heat wave extreme Winter Wilson and said on his Twitter that it is not a joke. The actor said he wants to bring attention to climate issues while international parties meet at COP27 in Egypt. Well, in other climate news, the UN environmental program announced a new system that will track methane emissions from space. The Methane Alert Response System, or MARS, will take satellite measurements to find the biggest emitters of greenhouse gas and plug those methane leaks. And the comedian Gallagher has died. He rose to fame in the 1980s with his sledge matic Act, where he would smash food on stage with a sledgehammer and spray it into the audience. Some people found this funny. Uh, the comedian had 14 Showtime specials and nearly 3,500 live shows. Gallagher, the watermelon smasher, was 76. Brian,
2: I guess you just wanted to be in the front row, right? And then you get a little bit of that watermelon,
8: you know. You wear a rain, climate heat change wave, extreme coat. extreme. That's it. Coat. Let's do it. See you, man. Tyler.
2: Always on fire, Matheson. Go <laughs> ahead. Chinese leadership easing, theoretically, up on some COVID restrictions. But will the country ever get back to any real semblance of normal? We're live on the ground with Yunus Yun, next. All right, welcome back. China taking a step back toward getting back to normal. China easing some of its very strict COVID zero policies. But how impactful are the changes? Eunice Shun is live in Beijing with the de- key details for us. Eunice, so let's hope. I mean, what's what's happening?
1: Well, Brian, China's leadership, first of all, has yet to share with us what they want normal to look like. Uh, the government said that it's optimizing COVID controls, and so that's the market is reading that, and you and I are reading that as meaning that it wants to ease. Uh, but essentially what the government's trying to do is make it more palatable for people like you or foreign executives to come into China. So they're shortening the government quarantine from seven days to five days. Now, if you come, you only have to take one 48 hour negative covid test. And then it should be easier to get a flight because they've ended a policy that U.S. airlines have thought is very unreasonable, it's a circuit breaker policy that was meant that they would suspend flights if there were cases on it. Um, Here in China, they're also uh, trying to uh, get rid of some of the more excessive curbs, COVID curbs, Uh, for example, now they won't um, put into isolation the close contacts of your close contacts, instead only the positive cases and their close contacts. And then um, they're redefining the, the word risk for different risk areas. And so by doing that, they're trying to uh, limit the number of people who would be put under lockdown. Finally, they're trying to get cities not to deploy a citywide mass testing. But it's a real big question mark exactly how all of this is going to play itself out on the ground, Brian, and whether or not it's really going to solve the problem of the uncertainty that zero COVID creates here, especially when it comes to the economy.
2: It's just incredible, and we're we'll watching the video. The people in line, head down. <laughs> they just look defeated, mentally, emotionally crushed. Yeah. We get one trip around this rock. It's been three years. COVID's a scary thing, but you do wonder what these people are feeling because what you're feeling, Eunice. Because we love you, and uh, we'd like to see you again in person soon, Eunice. and thank you. Three years, one trip around this rock, folks. That's it. All right. Your next guest runs one of the biggest Chinese stock ETFs, the CraneShares China Internet ETF, which is up big, 25 percent this month, despite the drama that's playing out in China. Joining us now is Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer of CraneShares. Brendan, if um, if and when we get, I don't know if we're ever going to get a full reopening, because I think she's at this point almost seems to be having fun with it uh, in some weird way. If we get a semblance of a reopening, has the money already been made this month on that?
9: No, not at all, Brian. You know, we believe that this incremental opening that China's not going to pull the the proverbial band-aid on zero COVID going away. They renamed it dynamic zero COVID. So you're going to see this incremental dialing back. And I think the positive there. Is that it's going to unleash domestic consumption? That domestic consumption trends have been have been light due to um, you know citizens hoarding cash due to the risk of being quarantined or locked down in their apartment. So, so I think you know domestic consumption is going to be a big story for 2023.
2: Yeah, what do you think the story will be on domestic consumption? <laughs> I mean, I, I agree that that will be the story, but what kind of is it going to be a? Feel good story, or is it going to be a story of woe and misery, like no, the I last mean, th- three years? Yeah, yeah.
9: I mean, I think I think you know, again, you know, zero COVID will go away incrementally, and and I think some of the measures that Eunice pointed out are really geared to the citizens in China. That I think you know, people have been gotten very frustrated uh, with the po- zero COVID policies, and so seeing it slowly dialed away is going to allow people to get out and about. Um, you know, we actually had a uh, economist from China visit us in New York this week, and it just shows that this opening up is going to happen. It's, it's not going to be, again, a Band-Aid. It's just going to happen incrementally. And we think a lot of the e-commerce companies we hold in K-Web will be end beneficiaries of domestic consumption.
2: Yeah. Is there any sector you like better in domestic consumption, travel, food, like what? Airlines? I mean, I think...
9: I think all of the above. I mean, I think you know you can make a great, great argument for you know Trip.com, but e-commerce plays like Alibaba and JD and Vipshop and Pinduoduo. I think also just in general, as this opening up happens, you know, investors have been really underweight to China, and I think I think you know removing this potential risk on the economy that you know, they clearly are doing this in order to get the economy going. You know, I think that really behooves a re-rating of of Chinese equities.
2: Yeah, Brendan Ahern, a crane shares been a good month. Been a good month. See what happens overseas, Brendan. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, something just happened in California, and it's sending solar stocks higher on the week—not today, but higher on the week. Can you name that mystery chart? We'll get the name in the story next. Welcome back. Solar stocks giving back a little bit of today's gains, though, or this week's gains of the TAN ETF is still up more than 10 percent on the week. Part of the move coming is California regulators pulled a bit of a U-turn on a proposal to reduce credits given to some solar panel consumers. But the state is still looking to alter its subsidy program. Pippa Stevens joins us now with more. So I want to put solar panels on my roof in California. What What does this all mean?
10: Well, Ryan, this has been really a saga that's gone on for almost a year with a lot of different ideas around what California's solar subsidies should look like. It all comes down to two sticking points, whether solar customers should be charged monthly to hook up to the state's power grid and how much they are credited for the excess power they return to the grid. These credits have been instrumental to solar's growth in the state, but utilities say it unfairly shifts expenses to those without solar. Last December, the California Public Utilities Commission issued a preliminary decision which would have reduced consumer credits and implemented a monthly access fee. It was met with a lot of opposition from solar advocates, including Governor Newsom. Then yesterday, the CPU seat withdrew that initial framework and released a new one. Now, it still reduces the credits for excess power, but not as much as the prior proposal, and it also scrapped the monthly hookup fee. It could be voted on as soon as next month, and other states looking to reform their subsidies are watching this decision closely. Now, both solar companies and utilities are still unhappy with the proposal, but we are seeing a big response in solar stocks, with Sunrun, Sunnova, and SunPower all up about 30 percent this week. Brian?
2: All right, Pippa Stevens there. Big change by California. Thank you very much. All right, still had Tech's big turnaround beating down mega caps like Alphabets and the Microsofts and the Amazons. They're extending yesterday's rally up 10% or more in just two days. Is this the all clear for the growth trade or fade this puppy? Gene Munster, up next. All right, welcome back. An understatement to say that tech was on a tear. The Nasdaq closed up more than 7% yesterday. It's best day since March of 2020. Past two days, Amazon up 17%. Meta up 12%. When's the last time we said that? Alphabet, Apple, and Microsoft rising 10%. Let's talk more about it with Gene Munster, Loop Managing Loop Ventures Managing Partner. It's been a long week. We've had some it's bankruptcies. Been a long nine
11: months, Brian. Yeah, it, yeah.
2: <laughs> give me a break. The notes, Gene, I don't really like to look at notes, but in this case I did because I like you. The notes say that you like Meta. I'm like, okay, that's clearly a typo. But you do.
11: Uh, we do like it, in part because we think that this rally needs to be approached with some caution. And one way to avoid the caution is to invest in some companies that have some downside protection, which we believe. So we'd put Meta and Apple in a camp that has some uh, protection to it. But just quickly before I get to Meta, because the reason we like Meta, has, uh, there's a backstory to it related to uh, what we think is uh, the fundamental question around the market nothing has really changed. Uh, Inflation is still high. It's easy to get it from eight to 5%. Getting it from five to three is difficult. And the second factor that hasn't changed is Powell's commitment to getting it to below three. And when you put those two factors together, you have to ask yourself a basic question about 2023. Will there be a recession? And our belief is that there will be a recession. Our belief is that Powell is committed to a recession politically. He can't say that, but I think that he is committed to that. So when you put those two together, we look at large cap tech. Of the eight large cap tech, all eight have increasing growth rates for 2023 top line, between 5 and 10%. Meta happens to be the lowest of the growth rates and the lowest multiple. And so I think that um, you know, this is one that uh, still is based on, potential, or on, on uh, potential. It doesn't have performance in the near term. But yes, Meta, we think, is one defensible name Despite what we believe will be a broader pullback in the market after this relief uh, starts to fade,
2: after everything that's gone on this week with this, you might have heard about this FTX thing. I don't know, just a little bit, mm-hmm. um, a little bit. Do you worry at all? And I'm not. Co- I want to be clear. I'm not comparing the two one bit, but it's the metaverse is kind of one of these things we just talked about, right? Like if, you, if you're not all in, it's like well, you're just old and don't get it. Do you worry there's a little hype-ish around the metaverse, but it's still got a long way to go? I mean, people paying real money. For fake, uh, not fake, but metaverse plots of land, which could, I don't know, could be a just there's unlimited growth.
11: Well, I I think they're near term, uh, the next 6, 12, 24 months, there is hype around this. And I think that, you know, if we go back and look at uh, the bigger picture here, when it comes to meta, one of the questions that we ask ourselves is, is there a computing platform beyond mobile? And if the answer is probably not, then there's no real reason for the metaverse. If yeah. mobile is going to be what we're going to have in a perpetuity. But most likely, there will be something different. And then you can debate which those are. I would say the leading contender is that some form of the metaverse is going to be there. And if you look at not only Meta's uh, now famous 10 yeah. billion in investment, Apple's there too, Google's there, Samsung. These companies are gonna will this into reality. And I know it is obscure today and hypeish today, but I think if you fast forward two years from now, it's gonna become more, actually not even two years. Yeah. I think if you fast forward six months, nine months when Apple shows their mixed reality headset, I think the
2: light starts going on okay. that, that this is actually going to happen. There you go. We'll see. Gene Munster, Loop Ventures. Thank you very much, Gene. Appreciate Thank that. You, All right. Still ahead. Record high inflation putting pressure on almost every industry. Is art the place to invest? We'll talk about it next. All right. One more thing before we go. The ups and downs of the stock market is your head spinning. Maybe art is the way to go. Turns out it holds up pretty well in an inflationary environment. Robert Frank's joining us now. Robert's also real, can be pretty, can look at it. Yeah,
12: it's fun to look at, Brian. Uh, Paul Allen's art collection becoming the most expensive ever sold. It's 150 works, selling for over $1.6 billion on Wednesday and Thursday. There were actually five paintings that each went for over $100 million. At the top was George Surratt's three models, selling for $149 million. Cezanne's famous Mountain Landscape went for $137 million. And Gustav Klimt's Birch Forest, now Paul Allen bought that for $40 million back in 2006 and went for $104 million on Wednesday. All the proceeds from this sale will go to charity. Now the bids came from 19 countries. Experts saying three of the top works, so the Syrah, the Klimt and the Van Gogh, all likely went to Asian buyers. Today's wealthy turning to art as a safer store of value at a time of rising volatility.
2: The patience, the wherewithal, and the proper advice, you can, you can actually build an asset in an art collection that is going to be relatively difficult to, to assail. The winds of change really don't affect it to the degree that you find in other asset classes.
12: And the sales roll on next week at Sotheby's, which has over $800 million worth of art coming under the hammer. The stars: Andy Warhol's white car crash, estimated at $80 million, and a beautiful Mondrian estimated at $50 million.
2: Brian? Look forward to you going there, maybe, you know, seeing Leo, cap Leo as you call him. I mean Leonardo to you, it's Leo. My, my buddy Leo, my new art buddy Leo, yeah. That's yeah, so what's eating Robert Frank. Robert, thank you very much. That was a movie <laughs> reference. That's it for us.
1: You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same
4: place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.